0: Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan
1: and Mark. Welcome. Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com. Yes, visit our website, vetgurus.com. Say hello to Mark. How are you, Mark? (laughs) I am great, Brendan. I'm great. How's that for a sketchy intro here? Episode 330, Thursday, January the 18th, 2024. Good to hear, Mark. And I think you wanted to have a a little bit of a a, a very quick chat about uh, one of the the projects you've just got involved in.
0: I I was telling you before we came on air that I had been out to look at the starling trees the starling trees are a bit of a phenomenon I was only vaguely aware of before I came up here to Far North Queensland. The metallic starling's a shiny bird which nests in colonies in emergent trees in the rainforest. Um and the colonies are huge, Brendan. they some of the trees have a thousand nests in them. And over the period of a couple of decades, they kill the tree with all the well, mainly urates the tonnes of urates that come from the several thousand birds in the tree just get dumped in the five or ten metres at the base of the tree and eventually they kill the tree and then move on to another one in the rainforest. But the ecology at the base of these trees is fascinating. The the uh, the seeds they process the from the berries that the birds eat, um, the animals that depend on that waste underneath, the insects and uh and various snakes that hang around waiting for a nest to fall down and a, an easy meal of um, of baby bird. Tasty. Um, yeah, there. It's, it's I've had a fascinating morning with these uh, this little bit of uh, concentrated ecosystem. I love looking at it, Brendan.
1: Now, what's the end game, Mark? What's the plan to try and help these trees? Um, it's a good question because the, it does seem to be
0: that uh, then the birds are changing trees more quickly and maybe doing more damage to more trees. And maybe they're... See, no one knows. That's why it's good to get out and get the, the data, the da- hard data, Brendan. Yes. But I think managing maybe some of the activities in the forest so that... Well, a simple example is that the, the feral pigs do love to snuffle in the bed of uh, nutrients at the bottom of these trees, and maybe yes. they're accelerating the death of the trees. So something like control of feral pigs might make a big difference to the survival of the trees
1: and the starlings in turn. Very interesting, Mark. And how long do you reckon this study will go on for? Years? Years? Well, think- yeah, years it's
0: been going for. It started in 2012. So already a dozen years. Yep. Um and I can see this going for at least as long, well the the life cycle of these nesting trees from the time that the birds get into them. So they're already 100-year-old emergent giant trees in the rainforest. The it generally it's assumed that the trees last 20 or 30 years with the birds nesting in them. It does look like that might be uh, happening quicker, that the trees might be dying more quickly, but I expect the study to go for at least that uh, 20 years and try and, you know, put hard figures on the number of birds, the number of trees, uh, how long the cycle takes and uh, and all the other bits of the ecosystem that network into the debris that falls under the trees
1: now who so who's funding this mark
0: that's an interesting question too this is part of the work that's done by a, a not-for-profit conserva- private conservation organization called people for wildlife um, they have organized private funding from corporations yep and uh the lead corporation amongst them is uh Louis Vuitton, in fact, so yeah uh it's in, it's interesting that that's something as uh seemingly remote from where I am right now as a French house of courteurs yes. actually pours a bucket of money in to get real science done so that uh we can see the persistence of these species and ecosystems into the future
1: very very interesting mark and I'm good to see you you must be feeling good makes you feel good on the inside doesn't it doing a bit of um doing a bit of doing a bit of science out there aren't you it, it, i reckon
0: science in the natural world is one of the things that does make me feel really really good just being in the natural world and observing those things pretty amazing but when you're actually observing them and making records and adding to data sets
1: oh, that's the best <laughs> Excellent. well i haven't been doing much um, for anything new Mark, so i'm not going to chat about what i've been up to nothing as exciting as what you've been doing but i think we should talk about an email that another email we had 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 a bit of a run on emails lately from Travis, and it was regarding our fairly recent episode, number 320, I think it was, Mark, um, and the use of V-gels in in rabbits and exotics. Um, Rabbits is the one that it's made for, Mark, and thanks for the email, Travis, and he, he just has a bit of a different perspective here, Mark. Um, he obviously works in uh, looks like a multi-vet practice or, or multi-practice where they use the V-gels in cats and kittens in a shelter situation, Mark. Um, and we may not have mentioned it, but there is a V-gel made specifically for cats, so the supraglot glotted device or glottic device that sits at the pharyngeal open in there and and, um, it's an alternative to intubating. And uh, they're having great success with it, especially in using it with veterinarians who have little experience um, new graduates etc that might be doing um, de sexings in a shelter situation mark and uh, he mentioned uh, what we spoke about uh, that you have to be a little bit careful about the the device coming out if you knock them, um, but he does use the the tubing that helps prevent it. I think it's called the D grip, um the one that the actual company who makes a V gel use. It's a little um, system that holds the the weight um from the from the anaesthetic machine tube in Mark that you attach to the to the um, V gel um, and it stops it pulling it out of the the animal's throat there mark. And also they're having great success in the surgery centres uh, with rabbit, rabbit D6 Insmark, um, which is good to hear. So, yeah, um, well, I agree. Travis, with what you say there, I, I I can't argue with um against what you're saying there. Um, um, he does point out that the um yeah the current version I think it's called the V Gel Advanced is, is the is the is the um updated version of the V Gel and the slightly less durable mark, so they that they, they don't last quite as long. Um, some people just use them as a once-off, but you can sterilise them, but they only last for several. Several surgeries, whereas the previous V-Gel didn't degrade. The, the the newer ones made more flexible to sit over the pharyngeal and the glottal glottis um, region. Mark, um, so it's a little bit more fragile uh, uh, um, for sterilising and cleaning. Whereas the original one, um, it had a little a little. Um, Note that you could um, tick off, and, and and they recommended only use it for 40 times, I think. Whereas this one, he, he's saying they're getting the right way with only about 10 times for use, Mark. So thanks, Travis. Um, yeah, v And interestingly enough, I've, I'll be um, teaching the use of V-Gels um, when in, heading over to. To doing a, a week of teaching in China um, later this year, as you know, Mark. Um, so I might report back on the use of that um, there, and I have have done some te- teaching with VGL usage before, Mark. So, um, but not with the new updated VGLs. So there we go, Mark.
0: I'm, 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 there
1: were two things I wanted to say, Brennan. It's great. I love this sort of feedback, and it's
0: uh, as you said, we've had a few emails lately, and. And I think, uh, while our podcast is largely you and I are talking to each other, we do like the idea that we're starting conversations and eliciting different points of view. And so I really love Travis's alter- alternate point of view, and it, it made me think that that it it is really, you know, the, a sync like like with anesthesia, it's whatever you're comfortable with, isn't it? And if you become proficient at using the V gel, I mean, it's got all the characteristics that's going to make it successful it delivers the the oxygen securely to the airways when it's used appropriately Um, and so if you you're happy with it by all means go for it and what you use frequently is uh is going to be successful and you're going to be comfortable with i the funny thing for me is that i often tried to you know expand my horizons give new things a crack as it were and and obviously because i was doing them as a trial um giving them um an opportunity i maybe didn't become as proficient as i should have and maybe enjoyed using them less as a consequence and and uh, reverted back to the original but yeah it's great to get an alternate point of view and and certainly um and I can see how the VGELs would be exceptionally useful in the circumstances Travis describes.
1: Yes. I mean, they are very good devices, Mark. It's just that I don't tend to use them. The advantage is, you know, that they promote particularly with the V gels, is that you, you're not causing any damage to the cilia and um, causing that sort of cough, reflex or irritation after surgery from from the intubation. And I can certainly vouch for that myself, Mark. When I had a, a minor surgery of a few years ago, they used a, an equivalent sort of device on me, um, so they didn't intubate me and I didn't have any raspy voice or cough in um, post-surgery um, because they just had that glotted. Pharyngeal device um, that they used for delivering the anesthetic gas to me. So, you know, I, so a thumbs up for me, Mark, <laughs> personally. Thumbs up, up so, in Yes. So let's, um, so uh, vetgurus at gmail.com, send us an email whether you want to chat about V gels or, or some other comment on our, on our podcast. We're always interested in feedback and um, new ideas, Mark. So I think with that, we're going to drop in. Tr- into our main topic, um, we'll have uh, that email. That was our news story this week, Mark. And you wanted to chat about, and we have touched on this before, but I don't think we've had a particular podcast specifically on on it. And that's the five freedoms. And I think most of most of the veterinarians and, and technicians, nurses, know of the five freedoms of animal welfare. Um, but we want to do a little spin on that and how they apply to unusual and exotic pets and the, our patients that we're seeing every day, Mark. So do you want to jump into, or perhaps talk about, just highlight the five freedoms, and then, then we'll go through each individually, Mark. And I think that the, the key thing here, Brendan,
0: is that we, I think we have consistently through this podcast talked about aspects of welfare and advocated uh, particular freedoms maybe on particular topics Um, but I thought it'd be good to just like do a bit of sort of like an overview of uh, all the the freedoms of animal welfare the five freedoms of animal welfare and just yeah look at them through the prism of our avian and exotic patients and the five freedoms of course are just to reiterate the first is the freedom from hunger and thirst the second is the freedom from discomfort the third, freedom from pain, injury or disease. The fourth is the freedom to express normal behaviour. And the fifth is the fear—the freedom from fear and distress. Now, I've, there's two things I'd say as sort of like introductory comments. The first one is that I know sometimes I talk about these and it feels like you know they they should almost be taken for granted they are so self-evident um that we need to uh that we need to pay attention to these things that maybe celebrating them as five freedoms is going too far but i think it's actually really important for us to continually remind ourselves of them um, and and as i said uh, look at particular things that we do through the prism of those five freedoms just to, to ensure that we're always holding animal welfare at the, the front and centre of the stuff that we do. I know that's people's intent, uh, but sometimes when you, you're not conscious of these things all the time, things can drift or decisions can be made that
1: don't reflect them in their entirety, Brendan. Yes, Great point, Mark. A bit of clarity is what you're saying. A bit of clarity uh, of these things. So let's jump into the first one, freedom from hunger and thirst. And and as you say, it seems self-evident there, but gee, how many patients do we see that they haven't had access to um, a water bowl, let alone um, food, Mark? And um, the classic there would be some of the reptile species that for some reason some clients have read on the internet's mark that you don't need a water bowl for a particular reptile species um, for example
0: and i think that um reptiles are the classic example but access to fresh water might even be you know there might be a water bowl in the enclosure with those animals and this i see this happen with birds and um, a particularly dominant bird might Yes, drive the other birds away from the water bowl. And so, uh, just, you know, the, the presence of water, water itself is not the only factor that allows us to think about access. And so, a number of water bowls or even different forms. I know I've had rabbits come into the clinic, um, guinea pigs and they've got a water bowl in their carrier. But they only drink from nippled drippers. And so um, knowing what that animal expects to get their water from, know, making sure they've got maybe even multiple uh, points where they can take
1: advantage of that. Yes, and if Make- they kick, kick over one of those water bowls and they only have one water bowl, then we're in trouble there. So definitely I, I strongly recommend to clients that they have more than one access for water in all enclosures, mate. Exactly, Brendan, Exactly. And you wanted to chat about, um, as far as water goes, some of these animals, we require it in a, in a different form, don't we? Or they well, enjoy well, it in a different form. Yes, yeah, and, and I think uh, particularly
0: I'm talking about the reptiles here when I talk about uh, maybe our green tree pythons or even sometimes the particular individuals of the bearded dragon species, they'll really appreciate a light misting and, and drink maybe a little bit more. Now, they don't absorb the water through their skin. I don't want anyone to get confused about that. Capillarity will move water to the commissures of the lips in bearded dragons, and so if they are lightly misted, the water will move through the tiny channels, the, the little spaces in the skin towards the mouth, and they will drink some of that. I have seen the green tree pythons lightly misted and uh, and hydration is a critical thing with those, the captive care of those reptiles, and so despite even having access to a water bowl, they might not drink enough to uh, maintain their homeostasis, and so misting them and watching them drink those little droplets off their special green skin can be very important to maintain their health. I cut myself off really quickly there, and Brendan is either Looking after the dog. No, I'm here, Mark.
1: <laughs> I'm here. Um, a classic example that missed in <laughs> is thorny devils, Mark. Ah, oh, yes. Now, thorny devils, you're talking about that capillary action, and they have these amazing channels around their head and neck region when it does rain. It funnels all of the water um, to their little lips and they um, and their mouth and they drink from it that way because they and they might sit in in the sand or um, in, in the desert or whatever and then they sort of absorb it through the channels and they well, those, uh, run, run up yeah. their little arms as well. Yeah. Well,
0: those um those particularly the thorny devils live in spots where even when it rains the the sandy open well draining soil means that there's very little. Sort of standing water for any length of time, and so you're right. The droplets um, that uh, either condense as dew or physically drop as rain on their head and neck, they will um, access that um, through capillarity, the capillarity yes. of their
1: skin. So the other other part of number one, Mark, was hunger, and oh. again, appropriate diet. So we could well, we have gone battle on, on this, about about that. Yeah. <laughs> but. Yeah, so important, appropriate diets. And um, um, yeah, we'll just leave it at that, I think. <laughs> Let's jump on to number two, freedom from discomfort, Mark. Do you want to chat about that one? Now, I think this is a really important
0: one because uh, I often talk to clients about, um, you know, the the refuges that are in various enclosures and particularly when we talk about reptiles, but also things like... Uh, uh, social birds, uh, uh, I know that if you're keeping um, columbiforms, doves and uh, pigeons uh, in an aviary, they are relatively aggressive with each other and so designing the enclosure so that there are uh, breaks in line of sight, maybe little alcoves or arrangements where the, the birds can't see each other that dr- dramatically increases the 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 ability to get away provides them with a refuge and decreases the stress that occurs from those dominant dominance interactions.
1: Absolutely, and we've also mentioned it several times about with the aquatic animals like our fish and our um, turtles, etc., that they have a refuge away from the prionive eye of, of the humans um, that are watching them, so they can get away and, and just. Chillax, Mark. Chillax. So the freedom from discomfort, we're trying to provide appropriate environment, which includes shelter and a comfortable resting area, aren't we?
0: And I think the turtles are a classic example because uh, I see many people keep them in beautiful setups, but those setups, the turtles don't understand that they're away from the humans they don't understand glass brendan and so it is very threatening to them to have you know these large bipedal predators wandering around just outside that invisible force field and they could at any second get much closer because i can't see any barrier and they're constantly in a state of stress as a consequence. Now, many people don't realise it, and the fact that the turtles swim all the time, that they do eat when there's food there, they think everything's good. But um, as you said, they need spots that they can feel concealed and and uh, and relaxed, and that changes even the stress hormone levels in them.
1: Yes. And speaking of discomfort or comfort, Mark, we also need to concentrate on the substrate and bedding for these um, enclosures, don't we?
0: So, so critically important.
1: Um, and whether it's uh,
0: um, the concept of a humidity box for snakes so that they can um, uh, um, get away and provide the appropriate humidity for them to develop uh the changes in the skin that facilitate shedding, um, whether it's a substrate that is not, uh, that doesn't encourage, you know, the classic one we see is bits of sand or whatever that are ingested with prey items for some of our agamid lizards that may end up forming some um, obstruction, gastrointestinal obstruction. Um, and so being aware of the substrate that uh, that might be ingested or setting it up in such a way that, they're fed in a place where they're not going to absorb that, ingest that substrate. Taking care of those things as well is critically important for the environment, for the, the, uh, the, the um, removal of discomfort from their immediate environment. Yes,
1: and speaking of discomfort, Mark, number three, freedom from pain, injury or disease.
0: And this one's the really pointy one for us as veterinarians, isn't it? Because we do... What I think um, our profession does is an excellent job of dealing with the emergencies when pain and suffering is obvious. But, um, but those uh, regular um, health checks, advocating for regular fecal analysis or disease screening across collections or uh, across avicultural collections or reptile collections, those uh, wellness management tools, they're going to not only uh, benefit the animals in terms of uh, keeping them healthy, but um, it's treating the disease or injury before it becomes a problem and becomes much more expensive. So there are multiple benefits to to really being powerful advocates for the freedom from pain and injury or disease.
1: Yes, well said. I can't uh, <laughs> I can't elaborate any better than what you've done there, Mark. With that, let's jump on to the next one. I think we're going to be punchy today. Freedom to express normal behaviour. So we're and- providing... What are we doing, Mark? We're providing species-specific requirements. And that's a really important point there, Mark, species-specific requirements. With respect it's, to s- space enrichment and social exactly,
0: needs. Exactly, exactly. It is, and particularly one of the things I've noticed being up here in the tropical north, and particularly in an environment where there are large numbers of frogs, you know I have a, a relatively sizable enclosure with some green tree frogs at home, and I'm pretty proud of it. It's sort of like state-of-the-art care for green tree frogs. But geez, I see the frogs up here, and and the amount of space they cover, the distances they travel, um, the amount of time they spend in the sun, uh, perched in trees, um, the the movement up and down in the trees, the elevations they get to—all these things remind me, almost embarrass me, um, that the level of uh, care I provide my ones at home probably even though I go to an extreme, doesn't allow them to uh, express all the full range of normal behaviours. And I think we should, at every opportunity, um, give them as much chance to express those behaviours as possible. One of my bugbears in this regard is, you know, the farming of snakes where someone will have a significant collection of snakes in tubs and there is... Well, literally nothing for the snakes to do but go yes. up and hide.
1: They're and in a gulag. They're in a prison. It is. They're in they're in um, an Ophidian gulag. Yes. They're um yeah, they're in um torture. Yes. I I agree one hundred percent, Mark. I just do not like that whole farming as you mentioned method of of raising um or or um production farm of reptiles, Mark, yes. So and it's gee, it's a it's a battle when you if you come across a some a, a breeder who's who um, brings animals in that are in that sort of set um, setup there, Mark, isn't it? Um,
0: it is a battle. One of the problems I have uh, in this the freedom to express normal behaviours um, is with my bird clients because a significant number of problems arise from the normal reproductive behaviour of birds. And particularly if you have a um, single animal, a single female, you, it's almost inevitable that that pet female bird um, is going to have some form of complication with respect to a reproductive tract. Yes. And so it, it's this is where I think um, discussions with other uh, like-minded veterinarians, discussions with the client about their expectations. Um, But prefacing all those discussions with our desire to allow the birds to express their normal behaviour, I think this is one of those ones... I know I'm sounding a bit philosophical, Brendan, but um, I think a lot of the reproductive problems would be solved if the birds were allowed to be birds.
1: Yes. And let them be free mark <laughs> they need a big area to fly in so yeah it's but it's amazing how many clients will once you chat to them about that whole uh prospect of, of a layer the animals to do what their species would do in the wild mark um they a lot of them will, will take that on board, and they'll I'll come back to you sometime in the future with some amazing enclosures and setups that allows the allows the animal to exhibit um, some of its normal behaviours that it may may exhibit if it was in the wild, Mark.
0: Isn't that the truth? I know that the vast majority of people share our desire to just want the very best thing for the animals, and sometimes it's um, it's just that no one's talked to them about, you know this might not be the best thing, we should try this different thing. And I think that's an important role for us to play as veterinarians.
1: Yep. So and number and, and five of course, mark.
0: Yep. That leads us on to the final freedom, the freedom from fear and distress. Yes. Um and it does uh it does it gets back to that communication thing. And I've I've had multiple situations where people have come in with their um you know their rabbit and their dog for vaccination, um, and and I, I always, even though the people might not perceive their pet rabbit to be distressed, you literally can't have a, a rabbit with the predators, and even though they're concealing the signs, they're really distressed inside, and so making sure that uh, the owners are aware that that's the case, that's what's going on. It's the same thing with birds near cats. It reminds me of that Larson comic where the the bird cage cover is a series of uh, attacking cats and is laid over the cage each night by the <laughs> well-intentioned owner. And uh, we talked about turtles before, just being aware of the specific conditions and the things that might uh, activate their stresses and make them think they're around predators. I think... Uh, they're all things that, as veterinarians who work with exotic animals, we can share with our clients and maybe move the the needle a little bit in the direction of more empathy and reflection.
1: Yes, it's the classic picture that I've painted several times because it occurs a lot, is the 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 proud snake owner in the waiting room, Mark, uh, who, who decides to bring out his two-metre carpet python um, and while they're chatting to the rabbit owner sitting next to them. <laughs> say, look at my little Boris here, you know, he's a lovely snake, isn't he? And he, as he's coiling himself around the the rabbit carry cage, <laughs> thinking uh, time to eat. Uh, yes. So freedom from fear and distress. So it's, uh, I think it's trying to try to view it from the animal's perspective, Mark, is what, what I mentioned to the clients there and, um, uh, Trying to make it fun for the animal and less fearful um, for the animal. There, so so that's a very quick run through, Mark. But gee, it's a, there's a lot of things that um, we have covered in more detail um, in some of our previous podcasts, there, Mark. Um, that that touch on the five freedoms, but it's it's something that we you know need to step back and revisit every now and again and um, and um, get a perspective, don't we?
0: We'd be keen, too, to hear how, you know, I know these things play on other people's minds. So anyone that has a thought about the five freedoms and how that influences their day-to-day practice of veterinary medicine in their avian or exotic practice, drop us a line. Send us an email. Yep. Let us know. We'd be keen to hear from you. VetGurus
1: at gmail.com. And Mr. Outro's here, so we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening.